0: Now, as a church this year, this school year, we have committed to a theme. The theme is drawing closer. You may have heard this before. Drawing closer to God through prayer and drawing closer to one another in biblical community. This is our theme for the year. One of the reasons Jeremy and, and our pastoral staff we decided on 1 Corinthians is because it certainly highlights this idea of gospel unity. It talks about how the gospel should shape our relationships and draw us closer to one another in love. We're going to see that in our chapter today as well. So I'm going to read now 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came. And through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. So food sacrificed to idols. And when you woke up this morning, I'm sure you were wondering, when is South Shore Baptist Church going to talk about food sacrificed to idols? Well, today is your lucky day, so get excited. Yay! Now, can you think of a better post-Christmas sermon topic than food sacrificed to idols? We've been consuming quite a bit of food this past week with friends and family, food that was not sacrificed to idols, hopefully. So after a couple of readings of this passage, you may not grasp the immediate relevance of it. You know, what, how does this passage relate to the 21st century church? How does this passage relate to me? I promise you, as we dig into this passage, we're going to see There's principles here that apply to us and are very meaningful and very meaningful for Christian relationships. Now, to understand this passage, first we need to to understand Corinth as a city in the first century. Corinth was an exceptionally religious city. I went to seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, about an hour west of where I grew up. and Grand Rapids, if you know the city, is an exceptionally religious city as well exceptionally religious. It's renowned for its churches, not necessarily good churches or big churches, but just the sheer number of churches in Grand Rapids, it's redonkulous. It's crazy. Grand Rapids knows how to do church well. Well, the city of Corinth in the first century, they knew how to do temple worship really well. Temples saturated Corinth in the first century. It's everywhere. And temple worship or idol worship was very much a part of every Corinthian's life. Now, here's what I mean by that Imagine you are a pagan Corinthian in the first century. So you likely spend several hours a week worshiping in a temple, and you, know, you go to the worship service, and the, the priest would sacrifice some meat to a, a particular idol. Now, the, the leftover meat would be used in, in three different places first, it would be sold in the marketplace. You can go to the grocery store, pick up some meat sacrificed to idols. It would be uh, in, in, in the temple restaurants, essentially. The, the temples would have these dining halls that would be attached to the temple. So you would go there, it would be much like a, a restaurant. Or following the temple worship service, there would be a feast, much like a church potluck, I guess. You'd consume the meat sacrificed to idols. Now this is how you got your meat. Now imagine that you become a Christian. You've received the good news that Jesus has come to die for your sins, you're taken from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now what do you do about meat sacrifice to idols? Can you go to go to the grocery store to buy some steaks for your family? Can you celebrate your anniversary or your birthday with some friends down at the temple dining hall, the restaurant in Corinth? What do you do with meat? The Corinthians struggled with this. It divided them. Some said, hey, we can eat meat. It's totally fine for us to eat meat because guess what? Idols are not real. And this meat, meat is a gift from God. And so we can totally eat meat at these restaurants or sold in the marketplaces. And others said, "No, my conscience won't allow it. My conscience would be violated if I ate this meat, because you know what? I've spent 10 or 20 or 30 years worshiping idols, and so this is very difficult for me. Now enter into this very precarious situation, the wise apostle Paul. And in this chapter he gives us two kind of sets of instructions, two categories, and he's trying to help the Corinthians. Understand what are they supposed to do with meat sacrifice to idols. Now, chapters 8 through 10 dis- deals with this particular issue. So we're just getting started this morning. Buckle up. More's coming your way. So first, Paul discusses in this chapter the character of knowledge, verses 1 through 6, the character of knowledge. And then verses 7 through 13, he discusses the priority of love. That's what we're going to look at. First, the character of knowledge and then the priority of love. He says two things in the first six verses about knowledge. The first thing is that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Look at this, the, uh, uh, look at verse 1 with me. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. All of us have some sort of theological understanding of this world, ourselves, and others. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Builds up. Now, Paul isn't against biblical knowledge. But he is saying that knowledge by itself is very much limited and even dangerous. So the existence of nuclear weapons, the existence of genetic medicine, isn't of itself an evil thing. But if you put it in reckless hands, if you give it to people with evil intentions, they, they have the potential to be very destructive Knowledge, if left by itself, if it's divorced from relationship, if it's divorced from love, can be very dangerous. It can puff people up with pride. Now, instead of letting their keen biblical insights, this is the Corinthians, instead of letting their keen biblical insights drive them to love people and to love God, they use their knowledge to serve themselves. Their knowledge gave them big heads but not big hearts. They could pontificate all day long about the origin of love and the nature of love and the application of love, but they struggled to actually love one another, in particular weaker brothers and sisters in their midst. They couldn't connect the dots between deep theological ideas on one hand and the everyday nitty-gritty life of messy, painful, meaningful Christian community on the other hand. Now we all know people like this, right? All of us know people like that. Okay, in fact, a lot of us in this room, we are like this, or we have been like this. I know I have. I remember when I was a recent convert to Christianity in my early 20s. um, It was a very unique time in my life, and and God gave me a passion for his word and for Christian books, and I just just devoured. I I read the Bible a lot, and, and I read Christian books a lot. Now, one of the things that God taught me during this unique time in my life was something called the Doctrines of Grace. I'm not going to explain the Doctrines of Grace. It's not important for the story. But let me just give you a nugget. Doctrines of Grace, they essentially put God forward as the chief player in salvation. God God is the chief player in salvation, and we are the recipients. And so the Doctrines of Grace, they were so beautiful to me. They impacted impacted me deeply in some ways. But I don't think that the Doctrines of Grace had sunk into my heart. I remember being on a summer project in Virginia Beach um, with a campus ministry. I spent three months there and I was taking a walk with my friend Dave and Dave was struggling with these doctrines of grace. Something that I fully embraced, I embraced with enthusiasm, he was wrestling with it. And so we're walking around and I'm sharing with him, I'm debating with him, I'm trying to convince him, I'm trying to persuade him about these doctrines of grace. We come home and two days later, Dave takes another walk with another friend, Chris. He's about 15 years older than me. He holds to these doctrines of grace with the same enthusiasm that I did. Dave comes home, and and we have a conversation, a little debrief, and I asked him, how did it go? Dave said, I'll never forget his words. He said, you both said the same things. But you presented the truth on a knife. And he presented the truth on a platter. You presented the truth on a cutting knife. He presented the truth on an attractive platter. You see, my doctrines of grace, they hadn't humbled me. My doctrines of grace hadn't helped me become more patient. It was just mere knowledge, at at least in my early 20s. It was a knowledge that hadn't gotten deep into my bones, deep into my heart. It was a knowledge that was divorced from relationship. Like the Corinthians, it was an incomplete knowledge. Now how do we handle our theological convictions? Do we hold them with humility and love? Or do we stab people with them like I did in my early 20s? I've heard it said that knowledge is like putting up sails in a boat. It helps you to get going. It's powerful. It's a lot of potential. But love is the rudder. Make sure the boat heads in a beneficial de- direction. Now, Paul desperately wants the Corinthian church here in this chapter to understand this. Love must be the rudder. And if it's not, then we all end up becoming knives towards one another. So the first thing we see about knowledge in this passage is, is that if it's left by itself, the only thing it builds is arrogance and self-glory. A second thing we see in this passage verses four through six, we learn that knowledge is foundational. It's essential. So yes, it has the potential to build up arrogance, but it's essential. Yes, you can't be a real Christian without authentic love, but you also can't be a real Christian without authentic knowledge. Look at how Paul affirms the legitimacy of biblical knowledge in verse four. So then, about eating food, sacrifice, to idols, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. We know. Paul agrees with these strong Corinthians who have this knowledge, these strong ones. They, they believe that idols aren't real. And it's true, idols are not real. The world has lots of idols, lots of lords, but in actuality there's only one God and one Lord. That's God the Father and God the Son. Now, verse six, if you look at verse six, this is this is just a beautiful reflection of the Christian faith. Notice that all things come from God the Father and God the Son. Look at verse six with me. One God the Father, from whom all things came. And then skip down a little bit, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came. And so the Father and the Son together are the creators and the sustainers of the universe. Nothing came into existence without their explicit permission. Nothing stays in existence without their explicit authorization. The Father and the Son, they make sure things stay in existence. Even, even us right now as we are sitting here listening, thinking, perhaps talking to the Lord, and God is keeping our hearts beating and our lungs full of air. But there's something unique about the Father and the Son here too. Jesus not only creates and sustains all things, he creates and sustains the life of the church. He gives the church life. Look at the second half of verse 6 again. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, talked about that already, and through whom we, Christians, live. So Jesus gives the church, gives us new life. It's like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Jesus was born to give them second birth. He died so that we may have new life. And the Father, notice the Father here is the object of the church's new life. Back to verse six, last time. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. So Jesus gives the church new life. He he, he takes people from spiritual death to spiritual life. He sustains their existence in this new life. And then the Father becomes the object of the church's new life. In other words, we now live for the glory of the Father, not for the glory of ourselves. Now this one verse is packed with so much good theology, so much rich theology. It's it's a carefully crafted, pithy, punchy summary of the Christian faith. It's beautiful, isn't it? And there's a lesson for us here Let's not despise doctrine. Let's not poo-poo good theology. Every single person in this room, every Christian, is a theologian of some sorts. Everyone has some knowledge of God, some knowledge of ourselves, and some knowledge of this world. And this knowledge shapes and and directs our lives and shapes and directs our our relationships. So the question isn't whether or not we uh, are theologians. The question is, what do we believe And how does that knowledge shape our lives? How does that knowledge function in our everyday lives? So Paul tells us two things about the character of knowledge in the first six verses. First, he says that knowledge, if it's divorced from relationship, divorced from love, it's only going to puff us up. The second thing he says is, but the knowledge you have, the good biblical knowledge you have, it's essential, it's good, it's important, so don't dismiss it. So these knowledgeable Corinthian Christians, they would get A pluses on their theology papers. But one thing they lacked, one thing that they failed to do, and that was to love. They looked down on the weaker Corinthians who didn't have this knowledge. And so Paul gives us and he gave them two aspects of love that that we need to embrace. And here's the first aspect of love. You see it in verse 7 and 8. Love understands and accepts the weak. Love understands and accepts the weak. Look at Paul's example in these verses. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Not everyone has this knowledge. Not everyone has it. Some people aren't as theologically sophisticated as you are. How are you going to treat them? Some don't have the kind of robust biblical knowledge that you've been blessed with. How are you going to care for them? They're younger in their faith. They're still growing. They're still putting together their theology. They're still trying to figure out how to live this Christian life. Are you okay with their weakness? Are you going to be patient? Verse 7 continues with how these weak Corinthian Christians were so accustomed to these idols. All their lives, all they knew was idol worship. It was such a natural, everyday part of their lives, right? And then they become Christians. They may tell themselves as they look at the idol in the corner at the restaurant, that's, that's just an idol, it's fake. But their former way of life is so ingrained into their psyche, into their emotions, that the old associations, they just can't be quickly thrown away. We, we, we understand this. We totally get this. We all have tender spots because of stuff in our past. Maybe there's some folks here who grew up in a, a home with an alcoholic parent. And you wouldn't touch alcohol with a 10-foot pole. And we get that. We totally get that. So here Paul models for us a love that understands, a love that accepts the weak Christian in our midst. He doesn't look down on them as the knowledgeable Corinthians were doing. He doesn't flaunt his theology before them. He doesn't ignore their sensitivities. He learns to understand them. Now, this doesn't mean he's okay with shoddy theology or he's okay with spiritual immaturity. No, he wants these weak Christians to grow, but it does mean that he loves weak believers regardless of their theological convictions, blind spots, and sensitivities. Now, this is really tough for us. This is tough for me. It's tough to be patient with younger Christians, with weaker Christians, with struggling Christians. We want to teach them. We want them to understand what we understand, and we want, to un- want them to understand that right now. Now, not all of this is badly motivated, I think we care for them. We want to see them grow. But as I examine my heart in these relationships. Sometimes I see more pride than I see love. I see a heart that doesn't remember God's incredible patience and grace towards me. Not only do I need to repent of my pride, but I must learn patience. The kind of patience that remembers the slow-moving process of spiritual growth. The kind of patience that is happy with God's timing in the lives of my brothers and sisters. Why is it so hard for us, for me, to be patient with others? God has been so patient with us, hasn't he? He's been so patient and loving and kind and gracious. He has put up with us. He will continue to put up with us. Now think about the people in your lives, the Christians in your lives that have been patient with you. Maybe even people in this room that you can point to and say, when I was weak, he was patient with me. When, when I was struggling, she was incredibly loving with me. God has called us to be loving in a similar way. So we see that love understands and accepts the weak in our midst. That's the first thing we see in verses seven and eight. The second thing, We see 9 through 13, and this is really the heart of this passage. The second thing we see is that love seeks to sacrifice for the weak. Love seeks to sacrifice for the weak in our midst. Again, this is Paul's main point. Love is not just a passive thing, it's an active reality. Look at verses 9 through 12 with me. Be careful, however... That the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So here's a scenario, a Corinthian believer who has this knowledge, okay, in other words, knows that there's only one God, that these idols are fake, and that this meat is a gift from God, and so hey, it's something to be enjoyed. And so this this Corinthian believer, he has every right to eat whatever he wants. But then there's another, perhaps younger Christian, who has a bad history with idol worship. And they're friends, and they go to this temple party on a Friday night, and this younger Christian, he follows the lead of the stronger one. He eats this meat, and afterwards he feels terrible because he has violated his own conscience. Paul would not be happy with this scenario. This is what was going on in Corinth. And he calls the stronger Christians here, the ones with knowledge, he calls them stumbling blocks. Isn't that interesting? Stumbling blocks. It may sound silly at first. I mean, you stumble over something, you just get, get right back up again. But Paul uses stumbling blocks, and he means something very serious in this passage. Stumbling blocks, look at verse 11. They bring real spiritual harm to others. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. If we're stumbling block, if we in our knowledge, if we are not willing to give up our rights and freedom for the sake of a weaker brother or sister, we can cause some real spiritual harm to them. Verse 12, when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So stumbling blocks not only sin against that weaker brother or sister, stumbling blocks actually sin against Christ himself. When you're not willing to give up your rights for the good of others, when you're not willing to give up your freedom for the good of weak, the weak, the struggling Christian, you can do some real damage. Spiritual damage to the brother and spiritual harm to your own fellowship with Christ. You sin against him. When we become Christians, we are saved not only from our sin, but we are saved into a new community, which is the church. And we have new obligations to that new community. And the first, the chiefest obligation is to love, to love one another, to love all kinds of people around us. There's no such thing as a private, isolated Christianity. There's no such thing as a Christianity that just goes your own way. It's just me and God. If you're a Christian, you have an intentionally relational, vertical relationship with God, and you have an intensely relational uh, situation with other believers. Horizontal relationships are very important as well. Now we see a glimpse of this community orientation in Paul's example. Look at verse 13 look at what he concludes in this passage how he concludes therefore if what i eat causes my brother to fall into sin i will never eat meat again so that i will not cause him to fall he's essentially saying here my brothers and sisters especially the weak ones they are more important than my rights they are more important than my freedom and therefore i am willing to give up whatever whatever it takes to make sure that no spiritual harm comes towards them. Can we say that with Paul? As you look around this room, these are your brothers and sisters. If you are a member of South Shore Baptist Church, what it means to be a member is to commit to this body, to commit to loving this body. These people, these people in your midst Can we say with Paul that these people are more important than my rights, even God-given rights? These people are more important than my freedom, even my God-given freedoms. And I'm willing to give up some for their good. So how does this actually look? How does this play out in the 21st century church? We don't struggle with meat sacrifice to idols. We've established that already. But there are a lot of gray matters that we do struggle with. Some things in the Christian life are clearly off limits. Black and white, the Bible is explicit. But other things, there are other examples where God's word allows for a range of standards. Scripture gives us wisdom to apply, but doesn't necessarily tell us a black and white answer on a particular subject. Now David Sitton, he was, a, um, he was our missionary conference speaker, you remember him. A couple months ago he came here. Um, he, um, over the course of a couple decades, reached out to some um, cannibalistic tribes in Papua New Guinea. And by God's grace, he saw some of these cannibalistic tribes convert to Christianity. Now it's my guess that cannibalism was pretty quick to go after they converted. Right? Some things, like cannibalism or drunkenness or adultery, they need to go pretty quickly, pretty early after you become a Christian. You don't ever want to meet a new Christian that's still struggling with cannibalism, right? I mean, that'd be pretty awkward. However, other things in the Christian life are gray. For example, is it okay to drink in moderation? Some people say, absolutely. It is God's gift to us. We should enjoy that beer. We should enjoy that glass of wine as long as we don't get drunk. Other Christians, perhaps with with some family baggage or whatever, say, you know what, that's going to go against my conscience. I cannot take one sip of alcohol. What about our standards for music, for television and movies? Should we let our kids become obsessed with a particular TV show that has some uh, minor questionable content? Should we um, equip them so that they can think through that? Or should we protect them from it and turn the TV off? What about rock and roll music, the kind of music I grew up with? Is it just harmless entertainment or is there a philosophy that undergirds rock music that deeply impacts and shapes the people that listen to it? What about people who have come out of a lifestyle of rock and roll or who have come out of a lifestyle of alcoholism? How do we Encourage them? How do we care for them? How do we care for them as they're putting together their theology and as they're trying to understand how to do the Christian life? Think about your political affiliations and the social causes that you support. Democrat or Republican or something in the middle, you may think your political leaning is spot on and that all of Christendom should jump onto your bandwagon. You are right. Or maybe you're really moved to fight sex trafficking, or fight poverty, or um, you know help orphans. These are great things. But do we have to embrace our social causes? Do we have to embrace our political affiliations in such a way that it destroys and harms other Christians? Do we have to make our political affiliations so central to our Christian life that it makes people feel uncomfortable? Do we have to make our social causes so central in our thinking and in our practice that it pushes other Christians away? God's word to us this morning is crystal clear. Love, love must be the governing rule. For the weak especially, we must be willing to give up our rights. We certainly have the freedom to develop our own biblical convictions and to practice them but let's not make secondary matters a battleground in the church, whether that's theological matters or political matters or practical issues. Let's let love shape the way we hold our convictions on a platter, not on a knife. So let's review. First six verses, Paul describes the character of knowledge says it's puffed up and yet it's essential. It puffs people up if it's divorced from relationship and yet it is absolutely foundational. And then in the last few verses here we've seen how Paul exhorts the Corinthian church to make love their priority. I want to look at one more verse before we conclude. I want us to zoom in on verse 3. Uh, You may be wondering why I skipped this verse. It's actually kind of a confusing verse when you first read it. So Paul just gets done talking about how knowledge puffs up and how love's more important. And then all of a sudden he says this in verse 3, but the man who loves God is known by God. Why in the world is Paul all of a sudden talking about loving God and being known by God? I thought we were talking about our knowledge and our love. Paul's point here is extraordinary. It's not about what we know and what we don't know. God knowing us is more important than us knowing anything. In other words, our identity ought to be found in God's knowledge of us, not in our knowledge of anything at all. That's Paul's point here. And when we understand God's knowledge of us, we love him, and then we can love others as well. Now, how does God know Christians? How does God know us? There's only one way he knows us. He knows us in and through Christ. God sent Jesus to save sinners like us. Those who have repented and believed in Jesus now own, now possess Christ's righteousness. And Christ owns, and, and has, 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 it's been nailed to the cross, Christ owns our sin. This is the great exchange. This is the good news. And so now, now God looks at us. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' righteousness. This is how God knows us in and through Christ. A.W. Tozer uh, has this famous quote that I think may be a little off. I think Paul would have issues with this quote. Here's a quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds When we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, there's a whole lot of pressure loaded into that. Quotes. I think Paul would have an issue with that. In view of verse 3 here, we might alter it to say this way. What comes into God's mind when he thinks about us in Christ is the most important thing about us. See the difference there? What comes into God's mind when he thinks about us in Christ is the most important thing about us. Aren't you glad it's not our knowledge that counts? Our loveless knowledge? Our incomplete theology? Our weak biblical knowledge? It's not about that. What counts? It's God's knowledge of us in Christ. Not only does God know us in Christ, but it's through Christ that we learn how to love. Jesus is the best example of love. He exemplifies what Paul is teaching here. What do I mean by that? Well, it's Jesus is the one who all honor, all glory, all majesty, all of the honors, all of the rights, all of the freedoms in this universe ought to be given to Jesus. And what did he do with them? Jesus didn't cling to these rights. He didn't cling to these honors. But instead, he lays them aside. He doesn't cling to it. He lays it aside for sinners like us. He lays it aside to love us. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate strong one who gave up his rights to save the ultimate weak ones. That would be you and me. This is love. Exemplified in Jesus. This is the kind of love that we as a church have experienced. This is the kind of love that we as individuals have experienced. It's also the love that God is calling us to share with others. This morning you may consider yourself a weaker brother or sister. Maybe you're a younger Christian, you're learning, you're growing, you don't understand everything, you're still trying to put together your theology, you're still trying to understand what it looks like to live the Christian life. Sometimes you feel inferior. Sometimes you feel intimidated. Sometimes you may even feel stepped on by more mature Christians. My friends, God knows you in Christ and he loves you. He will continue to be patient with you as you learn and grow. Maybe some in the room that are the stronger brother or sister, the one that Paul challenges is in this passage. Maybe your conscience has been pricked a little bit as we've been discussing this because you hold on to your rights. You hold on to your God given freedoms. You take great pride in your spiritual knowledge and your convictions. You judge other weaker Christians. You have no time for weaker Christians. My friends, if this is you, you're in good company. I'm right there with you. Repent of your sin and run to the cross quickly. God knows you in Christ and he loves you. He will continue to be patient with you as you figure out how to love. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for loving us through Christ. We thank you for what he did for us, not only in his death, but starting in his life as he took on flesh for us, as he walked an obedient, perfect life for us, as he went to the cross and was tortured for us, we praise you, we thank you for this wonderful example of love. Would you help us, Father? We are so inadequate in our love. Would you help us to love deeply? Would you help us to be patient with one another, especially the weak and the struggling and the younger Christians in our midst. Would you help us to move towards them and not away from them? Give us the strength. Humble us, Father. Remind us that you have been so patient and loving with us. Remind us of all the people that have also been patient with us. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel that sets us free. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for sinners like us. We pray in his name, amen.